I mean, going forward, you've got to be reasonably optimistic about Vietnam because they're problem solvers. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, we are bringing you three special episodes as part of our project on energy transition strategies. This project attempted to answer the question, can emerging economies grow while reducing their greenhouse gas emissions? To do that, we looked at three different case studies, Vietnam, Ethiopia, and the Indian state of Gujarat. Each offered a different decarbonization pathway in response to their specific economic, social, and energy needs. Over the past 15 months, through research and workshops, we have engaged with experts with regional expertise to help understand the complexities around each of their pathways. And in our first episode, we look at Vietnam. Our guest is David Dapis. David is a senior economist in the Vietnam and Myanmar program at the Harvard Kennedy Center. David talks with my colleagues Lachlan Carey and Nico Safos about how Vietnam is balancing a growing economy and increasing demand for energy with the need for carbon mitigation. I'll turn it over to Nikos now to get that conversation started. Well, thank you very much, David, for joining us. Uh, let me start by asking you to describe a little bit, very big picture, you know, why is Vietnam important in the context of climate change and low carbon development? Vietnam has about 100 million people. It's very successful, and some countries look to it almost as a model. And its model up to about two or three years ago was extreme energy intensity, very rapid energy growth, uh, faster than the GDP growth, and uh, a great use of coal. Uh, So Bangladesh and Indonesia and a few other countries were also following that path and taken collectively, that would be a lot of carbon. I think the fact that Vietnam has changed very recently is a good omen and uh, is one that I think others will look at. Great, thank you. And in terms of climate policy, where, where is that sat in terms of Vietnam's policy priorities? And, and what sort of approach has it taken uh, to addressing carbon emissions historically? And how is that sort of shaping up in the future? Well, again, up up to 2018 or so, uh, the electrical company, the coal uh, state enterprise and Petro Vietnam, uh, which is another state enterprise, were the serious players. And they basically said, this is what we're going to do. The Politburo said, okay, and that's the way it worked. Several things happened. Uh, You know, one is that local uh, provinces started pushing back on coal plants that were being planned and and constructed because they didn't like the pollution. Beyond that, uh, it became more difficult to finance. And because they charge less than it costs uh, for electricity, the subsidies were growing uh, to be unmanageable. So um, that and the brownouts and blackouts, uh, which are very unpopular with the factories, especially, let alone the people that want to watch the world soccer matches, were, you know, causing the Politburo to think that maybe a different approach was needed. And uh, in 2018, partly because the environmentalists, which were weak politically, uh, and some foreigners were saying, hey, why don't you get more renewables and cleaner and everything? And they said, let's get them off our back. We'll give them a high feed-in tariff, a high, you know, promised price for renewables, and we'll get a few hundred megawatts, and that, you know, will be the end of it. We'll keep on building our coal plants. That was the thinking. 
What happened is about 5,000 megawatts was proposed, which is a huge amount for Vietnam. And they suddenly realized, oh my gosh, this is real. This is something that actually is a large part of our energy planning, not some side deal that we do to keep people quiet. And um, they then realized they didn't have enough transmission capacity, so they have far more renewable production potentially than than they can send uh, down to Ho Chi Minh City, for example. But, you know, they're very pragmatic. The Communist Party has decided that they really want to try to do this. And so uh, the new power development plan is much greener. Uh, more gas, more transmission, more conservation, and less coal. Still coal, but less coal. So they've made a big switch. And so when you say they're pragmatic, the forces driving this big switch, is that the declining costs of renewables? Is it just seeing how uh, quickly it's been taken up within the system? Is it this growing pressure of the environmentalists? Like, What is the, the force driving this sort of pragmatic response? I think some people in the government are aware that the renewables can be cheap, but they're paying eight, nine, ten cents for the solar and wind right now. Now they're switching to an auction system, and that's a good thing because uh, although the producers won't get as much money, they can produce uh, if they get international loans at four or five cents uh, a kilowatt hour. So they don't need that extra profit. Uh, at all. So I, I think the low price of, a uh, potentially low price of, of renewables is one reality that is driving this. But the other one really is the political pushback from the provinces and people that they don't want the dirty uh, coal, which is killing uh, thousands of people a year, as it is, according to studies, and would kill probably twenty-five or 30,000 a year uh, if they implemented the last power plan. So I think it's at least two or three things. And the coal thing was running out of, um, uh, of gas, so to speak. The other thing, um, th- this idea of stranded costs, and this is already a thing in China and India, where the coal plants find there isn't enough demand uh, because they're more expensive than the renewables. And as a result, you know, coal plants are meant to run almost all the time. And if you run them at less than half of their capacity, their costs go way up. And then you you go into a sort of death spiral. And uh, at that point, you've wasted billions of dollars investing in coal plants. And at least some people realize that this is a danger in Vietnam and is one reason why I think they're backing off uh, new coal plants as, you know, as much as they are. Can I ask you one question to pick up on what you just said about sort of the pushback coming from the provinces? I mean, we know that a lot of times there's inertia and the bureaucracy and getting sort of the politics to steer in a new direction gets gets difficult and complicated. Can you talk a little bit about that political economy and what kind of constraints you had to overcome to make that modest shift? Well, again, I, I think it was a combination of the the blackouts and the difficulty of getting the coal plants built. They very much want economic growth and in full employment. Uh, I'm talking about the Communist Party and the Politburo, not just the government. And when they realized that this was a problem which would not be easily solved by more of the same, Uh, there was a political decision by the Communist Party that, no, we're going to take a different path. 
and they instructed uh, the electrical company, we know you don't want to do this, but <laughs> you, you really have to uh, try and, and, you know, use less coal and more of other things. And um, that is indeed what they're uh, now at least uh, projected to do. Uh, it, uh, implementation, of course, is always good to watch. Can I, can I ask you to step back a little bit outside of the power sector? Because you, you talked about sort of the electricity and energy intensity of the economy. We haven't seen quite as much progress outside of the power sector, but can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing in both transportation as well, very importantly, on industry? Sure. Um, I, I would say in industry, there has been largely a response to very low electricity costs. Uh, and as a result, industry is very uh, energy and electricity intensive. And there are studies that find that basically you, you substitute cheap energy for energy saving capital. That if you, um, in areas where there are higher energy costs for one re reason or another, you get uh, more investment in conservation uh, and you use, you know, newer, more efficient equipment. And I've just anecdotally talking uh, to factory owners and, and others, I think if they raise the price of energy, uh, then there will be much more efficiency with energy, although uh, you know, uh, as China has done, I think, very, very well, uh, if you have national programs, if you have suggested standards, if you have loans for conservation, all those things speed up the response and make it larger. Uh, and I think they're moving in that direction, but they're much behind China, uh, relatively speaking. On transportation, they don't really subsidize gasoline and diesel. They don't tax it very much, but they don't subsidize it. And I think they are trying to build electric scooters uh, and electric uh, cars and so on. I think one thing that is not generally realized is that when you use uh, motorcycles or scooters, very, very, even gas ones, very, very intensively, that's about as efficient as a bus. Uh, so a lot of the commuting is actually pretty darn efficient. I don't know if you've been in Ho Chi Minh City or Hanoi and seen a family of four on a motor scooter, but, um, you know, it, it turns out just even in terms of how they use the roads and, and the way they drive and everything, if you don't put too many cars in that system, it's actually very efficient. Um, so, you know, while they didn't plan it uh, necessarily, they aren't doing so bad in terms of miles per gallon uh, because they mainly use scooters. Uh, but I think for pollution purposes, they definitely need to switch uh, to electrics and they're they're probably going to do that over the next five years or so, I, maybe 10, uh, but maybe five. Well, I definitely take your point. Uh, within a day of arriving in Hanoi, the word motorcycle is kind of like the, one of the main things that you reflect upon. Let me ask you kind of a follow-up question on that. Um, you've talked a lot about coal and financing. Can you talk a little bit about the role of external actors? I mean, there is this big sort of narrative in Asia about Belt and Road Initiative, the role of the Chinese, the Japanese, the Koreans. You know, how has that impacted sort of Vietnam's trajectory? It's had a big impact. Um, one reason EVN was so coal-centric, if I can put it that way, until recently, uh, is that it was very, very easy to get uh, foreign financing for coal plants. 
often, uh, particularly China, but also Japan and Korea to some extent, uh, you know, would would come in and say, oh, well, we can help you with, you know, this coal plant. You know, the, the, the Vietnamese were comfortable with uh, standard coal plants, not uh, critical or supercritical, which are more efficient and cleaner often. Um, and as a result, they had fairly inefficient kind of dirty uh, plants that uh, not only polluted the air, but the ash itself and the disposal of it and the runoff and so on was often a huge problem for farms and fish and, and so on. I should say that Japan is beginning to back off its foreign financing of coal plants. The Koreans are talking about this. Uh, you know, I, I think that will help because there is some anti-Chinese feeling in the country, and if the Chinese are the only ones uh, offering uh, sort of dirty coal plants, I think uh, that would be politically unpopular as well. So I, I would say on the whole, um, less foreign financing certainly would push them in the direction of cleaner energy. But even if just Japan and Korea did it, I think China would not sell as much as it has done. One of the other sort of significant external actors that seem to, to be important to Vietnam's energy transition is large multinational corporations, and particularly in the manufacturing sector. We've seen a lot of interest from them in terms of negotiating a new deal on corporate PPAs, power purchase agreements for, for the industrial sector and manufacturing. How important do you see the role of those large multinationals being in sort of nudging or pushing the Vietnamese government to, to make some of these changes? Well, you know, they're important two ways. One is a lot of them have negotiated pretty low electricity prices. <laughs> and so, you know, they're, they're some of the ones that are not using the most efficient uh, techniques uh, because they don't have to, uh, because it, it doesn't pay. On the other hand, some of them, and I underline some, are in fact interested in you know, going greener and using renewable energy and so on. And I, I think those have pressured uh, the government to allow the industrial zones, for example, to generate their own electricity, renewable electricity, and sell it uh, to the factories. And they're also talking about letting the big solar farms in the very sunny areas send uh, electricity over transmission lines, which probably have to be upgraded or newly built uh, to the industrial parks closer to Ho Chi Minh City. And having a willing buyer, of course, helps that process. The flip side, of course, to that is uh, state-owned enterprises, particularly in the heavy industrial sector. How hard is that for the Vietnamese government to sort of deal with um, the issue of whether it's privatization or, again, nudging these, these SOEs along to, to sort of become more energy efficient? I, I think it should be under socialism. You can just instruct them. But I, I think, in fact, they operate that if the price of electricity, for example, is, you know, goes up, then they'll invest in more efficient uh, equipment. But otherwise, they'll kind of drag their feet if it's cheaper uh, to use old equipment and cheap power. Um, and that's what various studies have found, that it's not just the private, but the state enterprises that behave that way. They're profit maximizing. So stepping back again, uh, you mentioned power development plan number eight coming out you know, sometime this year is what, what they tell us. And early indications are that uh, they'll sort of be a lot more ambitious on green energy and, and various other um, elements of the energy transition. What are you sort of most optimistic about looking ahead uh, for Vietnam over the, over the next five to 10 years 
in terms of their energy transition? Where do you think they're going to sort of have the, the greatest successes? Well, I think they've discovered that you can produce and use effectively uh, renewable energy cheaply. And that, that's huge. And they're allowing private investment, not only in the generating, but I think they will allow it, although it's still uh, negotiable, uh, in the transmission, because they, they really need to upgrade the transmission lines to take advantage of that. Those two things, uh, cheap renewable energy, uh, private and uh, transmission, three things, are, uh, I think, the major areas where there will definitely be progress. Where I'm less certain but hopeful is that the conservation will also go forward uh, as rapidly. It's hard to overstate. I mean, you know, again, Vietnam uses more energy and or electricity per unit of output than China does, which is absurd. I mean, China has huge amounts of heavy industry. It's urban. It, you know, its its industrial share is much higher than than Vietnam's. By any metric, you should not expect that to happen. And the growth rate of energy in China is, you know, one third or one half of its uh, GDP growth rate. In Vietnam, it's higher than its GDP growth rate. So Vietnam's growing much faster from a more intensive energy starting point, which, you know, really is remarkable. It's, it, its energy growth was the highest in the world in the last 10 years. And thinking more about the, the sort of short-term outlook, um, obviously COVID-19 has, has hit Vietnam's economy uh, quite hard, but on the other hand, it's had one of the most successful responses of, of just about any country in the Absolutely. world to, to actually yeah. addressing the virus. So, you know, I sort of look at this and I think, well, you know, the economic hit and the need to sort of um, bring the you know, economic growth back is going to be a huge priority of um, the Vietnamese government going forward, P potentially impacts on global supply chains and, and conversations around reshoring. The U.S. Treasury just announced it's, it, you know, it's, it's looking into the Vietnamese currency. So there, there are sort of short term risks there. But on the other hand, the fact that the Vietnamese government ad addressed COVID-19 so well suggests that there's really strong sort of institutional and governance capacity uh, to be dealing with with some you know significant challenges whether that's climate or, or COVID. So how do you see those sort of forces balancing out in, in the near term? Well I mean first of all while they have definitely been hit uh, by COVID they're going to grow this year two three four percent something like that uh, which is better than almost any other Southeast Asian uh, country. So, and, and you're quite right, uh, they've managed the, the virus very, very well. And um, uh, people have confidence in the government and, and are, you know, sort of supporting it because they've been transparent. In, in terms of going forward, I think a lot of the problems uh, for growth are not just in energy, but in things like regulation and, uh, you know, education for higher value added and, and things of that nature. The, the other thing is that right now the, the taxation system taxes Ho Chi Minh and the surrounding provinces very heavily and redistributes it to provinces that people are leaving, uh, young people, you know, to work in, in the areas that are growing. And uh, as a result, the infrastructure is very, very stressed in the South. And uh, really, if they can't figure out a way around that, I think they'll run into real uh, roadblocks and, and problems. And that's an internal political problem. It's not a world problem. 
uh, in terms of the world, uh, I think reshoring is a concern and an issue as are robots, you know, a lot of the simple assembly and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact that there is all these tensions with China is really benefiting Vietnam. Uh, the treasury currency issue is a complete nonsense. I mean, economically, if you ask any, you know, economist, they would say, don't look at bilateral trade deficits, which is what the treasury is looking at. Look at the overall trade deficit or sur surplus, which is almost in balance. Uh, so, you know, they don't have an overvalued currency. And I think if there is a new administration in a while, they'll reach that conclusion because there won't be the pressure on the bilateral trade deficits. So, I mean, going forward, you've got to be reasonably optimistic about Vietnam because they're problem solvers. And uh, they realize they've got an education problem. They realize they've got a regulation problem. There are political tensions and, and pushback and so on. And it's not always easy to solve these problems. But, you know, they get around to doing it because the alternatives are worse. I like that. Vietnam are problem solvers. It's an <laughs> it's a interesting way to think about the country and sort of brings us to perhaps our final question, which is, you know, how much can we extrapolate from the Vietnamese experience? You know, how much is it that Vietnam are problem solvers in a very specific to their institutional structures and, and history? And how much of it are these broader trends sort of facilitating the energy transition that Vietnam is sort of being washed up in? Uh, how, how do we sort of differentiate between the two and, and sort of what lessons do you see Vietnam presenting to the sort of developing world more generally? Well, you know, I, I think every country has its own set of institutions and constraints and so on. But I think one that is perhaps more complicated uh, because it's a democracy is India. And, um, you know, India is also going very, very rapidly towards renewables away from coal. And I think for similar reasons, you know, the coal is asking for subsidies and losing money and they're canceling investments and they're building, you know, a lot of renewables. They're selling it at three or four cents a kilowatt hour, the, the, the electricity uh, and the fossil fuels cannot compete with that. Uh, so, you know, as battery storage drops and as you get better, smarter grids that can carry more electricity, uh, I think the economics will drive uh, cleaner energy. And I think that'll be fairly widespread, uh, you know, not just Vietnam. And you, I'm sure, know that uh, the cost of battery storage is really falling uh, quite rapidly and probably will be half of what it is now in five years or so. And the types of batteries are, will last not 10 years, but 20 or 30 uh, with different battery chemistries and so on. Uh, and this effectively reduces the cost of having a battery renewable mix, which makes it much easier to integrate uh, into existing grids. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been a great conversation and given us lots to think about and really appreciate having you on this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, David. Thanks to David for joining Nikos and Lachlan today and for participating in our Energy Transition Strategies project. You can find out more about the project as well as our Vietnam paper on our website and be on the lookout for our other two episodes launching soon. You can always find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us at CSIS.org or follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.